All right, everybody, let's call our attention back here to the front. I am so thankful that our church loves one another and delights in fellowshipping with one another. I want to encourage you that now as we are in this season of the year, it can get really frantic, it can get really wild, it can get really busy. Make sure that you don't overlook the necessity to continue to fellowship with the saints here at the church. So find ways every time you have opportunity to connect with the people who are around you so that you're not just seeing them here on Sunday morning. Ensure that you are fellowshipping regularly. With all of that said, let's now <clears throat> turn our attention with the, to the Word of God. I would like to ask you, please open your Bibles to 1 Samuel chapter 6. Over the past couple of weeks, we have been making our way through the book of 1 Samuel, and the ark has essentially become the central character. The camera lens has followed the ark wherever it has gone. And so for seven months, the ark was in the pagan territory of the Philistines. They had attempted to mock Yahweh by subjecting him as a trophy in the temple of Dagon. But Yahweh is different than Dagon in that Yahweh is both real and alive. So the Lord God struck the Philistines with horrific tumors of some kind, and he killed many of them. And this prompted them to send the Ark of the Covenant back to the land of Israel. Last week, we saw the priests and the diviners of Dagon attempt to undercut Yahweh by putting together a test, a test that they did not expect him to win. They put the Ark onto a cart, and they had it pulled by two cows that had never been yoked before and who had babies back at home. And against their very nature and against every instinct that they had, Yahweh directed those cows across the border and right into the hands of the Israelites. So today, we're going to see exactly what happened in the land of Israel when the ark was at long last returned. Please follow along in your own copy of Scripture as I begin reading at 1 Samuel chapter 6, verse 13. Now the people of Beth Shemesh were reaping their wheat harvest in the valley. And when they lifted up their eyes and saw the ark, they rejoiced to see it. The ark came into the field of Joshua of Beth Shemesh and stopped there. A great stone was there, and they split up the wood of the cart and offered the cows as a burnt offering to the Lord. And the Levites took down the ark of the Lord and the box that was beside it, in which were the golden figures, and set them upon the great stone. And the men of Beth Shemesh offered burnt offerings and sacrificed sacrifices on that day to the Lord. And when the five lords of the Philistines saw it, they returned that day to Ekron. These are the golden tumors that the Philistines returned as a guilt offering to the Lord. One for Ashdod, one for Gaza, one for Ashkelon, one for Gath, and one for Ekron. And the golden mice, according to the number of all the cities of the Philistines, belonging to the five lords, both fortified cities and unwalled villages. The great stone beside which they sat down the ark of the Lord is a witness to this day in the field of Joshua of Beth Shemesh. And he struck some of the men of Beth Shemesh because they looked upon the ark of the Lord. He struck 70 men of them, and the people mourned because the Lord had struck the people with a great blow. Then the men of Beth Shemesh said, Who is able to stand before the Lord, this holy God? And to whom shall we go up from away from us? So they sent messengers to the inhabitants of Kiriath-Jerim, saying, The Philistines have returned the ark of the Lord, Come down and take it up to you. Let's now pray over the reading of the word. Uh, Father God, we ask that you would please, by your grace, take the word that has been read, 
and do great things with it today. We ask, Father God, that just as we sang moments ago, that through the preaching of the word, you would show us Christ. For Lord, just as Jesus said in John 5:39, these are they which testify of me. And so Lord God, I pray that as we come and we look at this passage about the holiness of God and the danger of approaching him, that in this passage we would see the incredible mercy of Jesus Christ and that we would be humbled. And Lord, I ask that if there is anyone here who currently stands as an enemy of God, anyone here who has not yet been born again, Lord, I ask that through the preaching of the word today and by the ministry of your Holy Spirit that you would open their eyes to see the beauty and the love and the kindness of God our Savior. It's in Jesus' name we pray these things. Amen. The last time we saw any words being spoken by any Israelite in the text is all the way back when the Israelites first heard that they had lost the battle and that the ark had been taken into the Philistine territory. And if you remember those last words that were spoken, they were spoken by the daughter-in-law of Eli. And she said, The glory of the Lord has departed. And now the ark has returned. Now imagine... Imagine the excitement and the joy that would have been present at Beth Shemesh as they looked up while they were harvesting their fields and they saw what they never expected. They saw that the ark was coming over the hill to their territory. They assumed that the ark was lost forever. Think about this. Over the last seven months, there had been no spies sent into the Philistine territory to steal it. There had been no army that had been gathered together to go and retrieve it. They had left it for lost. And they, from their perspective, believed the Lord had departed from the people, and they never knew if his presence would ever return. Now imagine the victory cry that must have arisen. Imagine the rejoicing that must have been there. And imagine the confusion of the people as they're looking around at each other, saying to themselves, How did this happen? Like, not only the Philistines were confused, they must have been confused. Why is it that somebody, anybody, would think to themselves, it's a good idea to take this box, this golden, beautiful box, and send it back to us? Even if they don't realize what value there is in it, at least the box itself is valuable, yet they just put it on a cart and sent it back. And imagine the celebration as they then began to worship the Lord. It says that they took those two cows and they sacrificed them to the Lord as an offering and began to make other sacrifices and began to worship with hearts filled with thanksgiving. The glory of the Lord had departed. The Lord is here. The Lord was gone, but now he is back. That is the thinking that was going on in their minds. But then the narrative takes a radical left turn when the Lord turns against his own people and strikes them down. You see, the exact same word that is used to describe what the Lord did to the, the Philistine people, that exact same word is used to describe what happens to the Jews. Look at it again in verse 19. And he struck some of the men of Beth Shemesh because they looked upon the ark of the Lord. He struck 70 men of them, and the people mourned because the Lord had struck the people with a great blow. That is the exact same language that is used when the Lord struck the Philistines with a great blow. Now, I can guarantee that whatever rejoicing mood was existing amongst the people totally and dramatically shifted immediately 
the singing and dancing was over. Where there was joy because of the return of the ark, there, there is now mourning over the dead. The focus went from a massive worship service to a massive funeral service. This is a passage that begs us to slow down. It begs us to consider the very nature of God. Why would something like this happen? It causes us to consider the amazing splendor of the holiness of God. In order to best understand what's going on in this passage, our outline today is going to be very, very simple. We're just going to ask and answer three questions from this text, and then we're going to move toward considering three ways that Jesus himself relates to this passage. Let's first consider three questions. Question number one, the simplest of the question, what is the ark of the Lord? You see, we've been dancing around this question a little bit over the past few weeks, but never really explored what this holy item was or what made it special. So what is the ark of the Lord, or as some call it, the ark of the covenant? Simply put, it was just a box. It's just a box. But it was a beautiful box. It was ornately carved out of acacia wood. It was plated with gold. It was a box that had two statues of angels carved on the cover with their wings stretched out forward so that it would create a seat on the top and that it was used to cover the box. It contained three items. It had the Ten Commandments, the tablets that, the, the, that Moses carved. It also had the rod of Aaron that had budded, and it had a jar filled with manna. But even with all of these unique elements, there was nothing that separated this box from something that you might see in any museum of antiquities around the world. It was just a box, except for one very substantial detail. But in order to understand that detail, you need to understand something about the person of Moses and the relationship that he had with the Lord. Moses would regularly meet with God and would regularly speak with God. We see the first example of this when the Lord appeared to Moses in the burning bush in Exodus chapter 3. And Moses was startled by this and the Lord spoke out of the burning bush and communicated with him. And moving forward, the Lord continued to communicate with Moses on many occasions. We see, for example, on Mount Sinai where he was given the Ten Commandments. But even after those events, even after they were in the wilderness, Moses was in constant communication with the Lord and it occurred in a place that was called the Tent of of meeting. This is how Exodus chapter 33 describes the encounters that would take place in the tent of meeting. It says, now Moses used to take the tent and pitch it outside of the camp, far off from the camp, and he called it the tent of meeting. And everyone who sought the Lord would go out to the tent of meeting, which was outside of the camp. Whenever Moses went out to the tent, all the people would rise up And each would stand at his tent door and would watch Moses until he had gone into the tent. When Moses entered the tent, the pillar of cloud would descend and stand at the entrance of the tent, and the Lord would speak with Moses. And when all the people saw the pillar of cloud standing at the entrance of the tent, all the people would rise up and worship, each at his tent door. Thus, the Lord used to speak to Moses face to face as a man speaks to his friend. Now, the Israelites lived through some strange stuff. Consider the 40 years they were in the wilderness. It was bizarre thing after bizarre thing. They were surrounded by incredible evidence of the power and the presence of God. 
And that makes their unbelief and their rebellion so much more outrageous when you think of it in light of the fact that they would regularly look out of their door and see a physical manifestation of the evidence of the presence of God right outside in their backyard. The Lord would come down and would meet with Moses, but it doesn't say the Lord remained in the pillar of cloud, but that he would speak to him face to face. What you don't see in this passage that I just read to you is that the cloud itself was not the presence of God, but that was like a way the presence of God would display itself before it would enter into the tent with Moses. You get a sense of that in that it would say that he spoke to Moses face to face, but there is an item that existed in the tent of meeting where the Lord would dwell and speak with Moses. That was the Ark of the Covenant. Well, how do we know that? Because here's what the Lord said when he gave the instructions for the Ark to be built all the way back in Exodus 25, verses 21 and 22. He said, And you shall put the mercy seat on top of the ark, and in the ark you shall put the testimony that I shall give you. There, at the ark, there I will meet with you, and from above the mercy seat, from between the two cherubim that are on the ark of the testimony, I will speak with you about all that I will give you in commandment for the people of Israel. When the presence of the Lord would come down in the cloud, the cloud would remain there, but the presence of the Lord would go into that tent, and it would take its seat upon the mercy seat of the ark. And there, the Lord would communicate in manifest presence face-to-face -face with Moses. God had declared that he was no longer going to manifest his presence in the burning bush or in a thunderstorm on the mountain. Moving forward, the manifest presence of God was going to be revealed on that mercy seat that covered the ark. It was a picture of God himself ruling over the Ten Commandments. The box itself was nothing. It was just a bunch of raw materials that had been shaped to look nice until it was set aside as a pseudo-throne for the Lord to occupy as he appeared amongst the people. That is what made it special. The presence of God is what made it special. And that is what made it holy. So with all of that in mind, let's move now our attention back to 1 Samuel chapter 6 and to question number 2. How did the Israelites offend the Lord in this passage? What did they do wrong? As a parent, one of my chief responsibilities is to do my very best to keep my children from harming themselves. If you have children, you probably can't even begin to calculate the number of times you have had to tell them things like, don't walk into the street, or don't put silverware into the outlets, or don't swing a shovel at your brother. He's not going to think it's very funny. We say these things because we know better than they do how vulnerable they are. We know the power of a moving car and the danger of electricity. And we understand the frailty and the limitations that they have and their need for safety. So we make up rules and we create boundaries to keep them from destroying themselves. The Lord had given clear instructions about how the ark was to be handled. He had made boundaries that the people were not to cross. And he made these boundaries because the power of his holiness and his presence was so great and their frailty was massive that comes from sin. So along with the instructions about how to build the ark, the people of Israel were also given instructions, very extensive instructions, about how the ark was to be treated and stored and transported. By the providence of God, the ark that the Philistines delivered back into the land just so happened to end up in a Levitical city, a city where the people of Levi lived. 
And this was important because the Levites were the only ones that were supposed to handle the ark. But notice that it was not how the ark was handled or how it was removed from the cart that kindled the anger of the Lord. Verse 19 says that he, quote, struck them down because they looked upon the ark of the Lord. This is going to require some further digging because doesn't it say that all of the people who were in the fields harvesting their wheat looked up and saw the ark? Yet they didn't die. And many, many, many of the Philistines had looked at the ark and not died. And many of the Israelites who went into battle and even carried the ark in with them went home to their families and did not die. So what in the world is going on here? Now I'm going to share with you three different possibilities of how this whole scenario played out. The first possible explanation is the way that several versions of the Bible translate this verse. Several versions, including the King James Version, said that they looked into the ark of the Lord. This means that they would have opened the box and they would have checked out the contents. Now, this is a very real possibility. Perhaps they would have done this out of curiosity or, in my opinion, if this is the case, the reason they would have done that probably would be something like this. If your enemy had your box that had your special stuff in it, and then the box came back, you might want to just open the lid and check the contents. You might just want to make sure they hadn't stolen what was inside. So perhaps it came back and they just wanted to make sure the contents were still there. But nobody was supposed to handle those things. And so there are many who would argue they opened the lid and thus they died. It's explicitly stated that you're not allowed to do this in Numbers chapter 4, verse 15 when the Lord was explaining to the people how they were to transport the ark and the other holy items from place to place. There it says, And when Aaron and his sons have finished covering the sanctuary and all the furnishings of the sanctuary, as the camp sets out, after that the sons of Kohath shall come to carry these. But they must not touch the holy things, lest they die. You can't touch it or you're going to die. So perhaps they ignored the rules of the Lord and they touched what was not to be touched. The one thing that holds me back from truly buying into this perspective is this. Later on in 2 Samuel, we're going to see that one man puts out his hand, his name is Uzzah, and he touches the ark and is immediately struck dead. It seems inconsistent that in this case, the Lord would have allowed at least 70 people to come and touch the box before striking anyone dead. But on the same account, we know with confidence that many of the Philistines touched the ark. They moved the ark. They didn't know the rules around it, nor did they have the law explaining to them who was and was not eligible. And even if they did know, there were no Levites amongst their ranks, so none of them were permitted to have any involvement with it. Yet the Lord did not strike all of them dead. So this option is a possibility, but in my opinion, it's not the best explanation. The second possibility is that there is some kind of a cloth cover that had been placed over the ark, and the people of Beth Shemesh pulled that cover off and then looked at the ark in its fullness and were killed. But here's why I don't buy that explanation. The people who saw the ark coming down the road from a distance knew that it was the ark. And the people who looked at it basically recognized that is our national symbol. And they were aware from the moment that it showed up on the horizon that the ark had been returned. Also, there's never any mention in the text of a blanket or a sheet being placed over the ark that had to be removed. 
So I think the scholars who make this claim are way off the mark. The third option that people put forward is that the people looked on the ark in an improper way. John Woodhouse explains it like this in his commentary. He says, this cannot simply mean that the people saw it. Everyone saw it, but some gazed at it as they should not have gazed. Another commentary says it this way. Here, it no doubt signifies a foolish staring, which was incompatible with the holiness of the ark of God and was punishable by death according to the warnings listed in Numbers 4.20. This makes the most sense to me. You see, God had given clear and powerful warnings against intently looking upon the ark. Numbers chapter 4, verse 20 says, But they shall not go in and look on the holy things, even for a moment, lest they die. The word look in 1 Samuel chapter 6 is an intent form of the word, and it is the exact same form of the word that is used here in our passage today. It is a looking with intensity. Now consider just for a moment, just over a week ago, we had a day in the word here at our church and in that day in the word we considered the book of Habakkuk and in Habakkuk chapter 1 verse 13 it describes God as being quote of purer eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong the scripture describes God in this anthropomorphized way to describe that he has eyes that are so pure that he can't even look upon evil but our text today is describing people in the exact opposite way. We are so wicked that we literally cannot look at God's presence and live. So regardless of what particular action they took, and to be honest, I'm not fully convinced of any of these points, the ultimate point stands that they died because they were unholy people standing before the presence of a holy God. This brings us to our third question. How did the people of Beth Shemesh respond? Well, after the Lord struck 70 of them down, what did the people do? They started off with the exact right question in verse 20. They asked, who is able to stand before the Lord, this holy God? Perhaps for the very first time in their lives, the concept of God's holiness was tangible to them. They realized that his power was not hypothetical, it was actual. And you can see this very clearly in the outcry that they are now aware of themselves being far from holy. You don't ask, how could we stand in the presence of a holy God if you think that you are holy? They realize in this moment, they themselves are very unholy. With these newfound revelations, what should they have done? They should have immediately bowed face down before the Lord. And they should have asked for forgiveness and for mercy and for the kindness of this holy God. They should have turned to him in repentance. But instead, notice that they do exactly the same thing that the Philistines did. When the presence of God began to produce destruction in the land of the Philistines, what did they do? They just sent it on to Gaza and then on to the next town. What did the people of Beth Shemesh do? As soon as this begins to happen, they call the people of Kiriath-Jerim and say, Hey, the ark is here. Come get it. They began to try everything they could to get the presence of God to be as far away from themselves as possible. In other words, this once again reveals that the inhabitants of Canaan were no different than the people of Israel. They're equal when it comes to how much they deserve to be absolutely wiped out by the presence of God. The only difference is that God had made a covenant with Israel. 
and therefore he showed mercy, and they were not entirely destroyed. If you are here today as an unbeliever, I want to thank you for joining us today. I am so grateful that the Lord has brought you here to our service. I am so grateful that you have joined us. I'm thankful that you are with us, but friends, I don't want you walking out of this building the same. I don't want you to do that because you walked in in a dangerous state. You might not be passing the ark to the next town, but if you walk out without trusting and following the Lord, without repenting, then you are basically just passing it to the next day, expecting that maybe someday in the future you might actually deal with the Lord. But putting off repentance instead of bowing the knee to Jesus is not acceptable. What we are doing here for the rest of the day is we are going to turn our attention to how Jesus relates to this passage. And as we do, if you are an unbeliever, if you have not yet been saved, if you have not yet been born again, I want you to consider Jesus. He is better. He is better. And he allows us to do things in relationship to the Lord that are inconceivable. Consider three things about our king in relation to today's passage. First, Jesus gave us access to himself. Reading a passage like this one, you should have at least a little bit of a shiver that goes up and down your spine. God killed 70 people for looking at a box. God takes sin incredibly seriously. Sinners cannot stand in the presence of a holy God. If you were to stand before him, you could not even stand under the weight of your own sin. Not even Moses was permitted to view the fullness of God. For the Lord said, if you do, you will surely die. But, but, Jesus is God. And he dwelt among us. Jesus tabernacled amongst us, and yet we were not consumed. Word of the Father, now in flesh appearing. Veiled in flesh, the Godhead see. Veiled incarnate deity. Mild he lays his glory by. Born that man no more should die. First John, I'm sorry, John chapter 1 verse 14 says, which in my opinion is the most underrated Christmas verse in the Bible, says, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we have seen his glory. We have seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. We saw his glory and we didn't die. Does that not shock you? He clothed himself in humanity so that we might look on him and not be destroyed. He came to become one of us so that he could dwell with us. John goes even further in his introduction to 1 John where he says, That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life, the life was made manifest and we have seen it and testified to it and proclaimed to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. The manifest presence of God was here. The manifest presence of God was with us and we heard it and we saw it and then that intensified version in Greek is, and we looked upon it. When they looked upon the ark, it killed them. But Jesus came in his glory, and we looked upon him, and it even says they went so far as to touch him. Have you gotten used to that idea? Have you just gotten used to that idea? Yeah, okay, so Jesus came, big deal, Christmas. 
celebrate, open presents, no big deal. The manifest presence of God came in the person of the Son of God, and yet we were not destroyed. Every single person that came into contact with Jesus was worthy of instantaneous death. There is nothing on earth that comes even close to being as deadly as the presence of God. But Jesus humbled himself, taking on the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and in doing so, he retained his intrinsic glory, but he laid aside that extrinsic glory, that shining glory, that glory that would kill you if you saw it. And in doing so, the Lord, the master, the sovereign ruler of all of the universe became accessible to common sinful people like you and me. Jesus made himself accessible to us. The second thing that I want you to see in relation to Christ and our text is that Jesus has given us access to the Father. For the majority of the time that the ark was in Israel, it was kept behind a veil in the tabernacle or in the temple. The veil was made of a woven fabric, and it was roughly 60 feet tall, and it was about four inches thick. It was designed to separate everything from the ark so that nobody would ever accidentally catch a glimpse of it. And it was screaming, you are not welcome here. Only the high priest was allowed to enter behind that veil, and only once a year. The entire event that we are reading about is this rare and unusual excursion where the ark, for this one brief period of time, was outside of the confines of that veil. And we saw that when it was outside of the confines of that veil, it killed a lot of people. It was outside of that veil for roughly 70 years. And during that time, we, we really can't gauge how many people saw it. But what we can say is that for the rest of the time of its existence, from the time it was built until the time of the exile, it was only seen by 31 people, all of whom were the high priest, ranging from Aaron, the brother of Moses, to Sariah, who was the final priest when Nebuchadnezzar conquered Jerusalem. 31 people saw that ark. There was a barrier that kept every single other person away. It kept everyone from even thinking about entering into that holy of holies, or in Latin, the sanctum sanctorum. Now, I'm not a pro wrestling fan, but I remember being a kid, and whenever uh, we didn't have television in my house, my grandmother would, would tape NBA games so that I could watch them the next day or the next week. There was no internet in my house, so who knew what was going on in the world? So we would watch them late and nothing mattered. But in those NBA games, there was always these advertisements for professional wrestlers like Stone Cold Steve Austin and The Undertaker and The Rock. And inevitably, in all of those commercials, at some point in the ad, one of them would end up ripping their shirt off. And they would do that to show how incredibly strong they were. Yeah, they were ripping a T-shirt. Big deal. I remember as a kid, one time my dad took me to this group that was called the Power Team. I'm not sure if anyone has ever heard of it. Have you ever heard of the Power Team? It was a Christian group of these really muscly guys, probably guys that couldn't get into the professional wrestling scene but wanted to. There were Christian guys that would go around and they would do these incredibly powerful acts displaying the incredible abilities of human strength. And they would do that and then they would have an altar call and share the, share the gospel. And I remember they would do things like tear a phone book in half to show how strong they were. It's just a phone book. And I lived in a town of Chanute where the phone book was like really small. So it wasn't that big of a deal. 
my point being, when Jesus died on the cross, there was something that was torn. It was the veil that separated the Holy of Holies, the Sanctum Sanctorum, the Ark of the Covenant from everyone else. And the Lord Jesus Christ died, tearing the separation that divided us. The fabric was a very powerful symbol. But tearing that was nothing in comparison to tearing the barrier that stood between us and the Father. And he tore that down by shedding his own blood so that no more would we have to hear, stay out or you will die. Jesus, the way, the truth, and the life, it says, no one comes to the Father except through me. If you turn that sentence around, it means that you can come to the Father through me. We have access to the Father through him. We have access to God the Father through the Son, Jesus Christ. And if you are in Christ, there is no longer any reason for you to be separated from the Father. Your sins have been forgiven. You have been given the righteousness of Christ. Our access to the Father is perfect and it is eternal. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Those men who looked at the Ark or into the Ark of the Covenant were struck dead in an instant for their cavalier attitude toward the Lord. But we, by the grace that we have found in Jesus Christ, have permanent, eternal, irrevocable access to the presence of God. Which brings us to our third way that the Lord Jesus relates to this passage today. And it is that he has allowed us ongoing access to the Lord through prayer. Hebrews chapter 4 verse 6 tells us, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace in our time of need. This is an element of prayer that is being referenced and get the picture that he's making here. He's saying, look, if you want to walk into the throne room of any person that's famous or powerful in this world, good luck. In those days, you want to go talk to Nero? You want to go get a word with him? Make an appointment, maybe in seven years you'll get in there. It's really impossible for most of us in this room to even have a conversation for a few seconds with the most powerful or famous or influential people in this world. But God, who is much more significant and much more powerful than any of them, has welcomed us at any time freely into the Holy of Holies, and he says, just come speak to me. Cast your cares upon me because I care for you. Through the blood of Christ Jesus, we have no reason to fear entering the presence of God. Unlike the people of Beth Shemesh, you are welcomed. God is not only willing to allow you into his presence, he loves you so much that he has commanded you to come. He has graciously and for your good commanded you to cast your cares upon him. And brothers and sisters, we should not take for granted the fact that the Lord has opened that door for us. Jesus is better he has given us access to himself, he has given us access to the Father, and he has given us permanent, ongoing, present access through prayer. Speaking of which, let's close now in prayer. Father, we ask that through the passage that we have considered today, we would see the incredible majesty of Jesus Christ, and we would see his mercy towards us. Lord, we pray that the heart that you have for sinners like us would be on display in this passage. Lord, that though we were absolutely incapable of standing in your presence, you have made us capable by 
giving us forgiveness and giving us redemption and reconciliation through Jesus Christ. Father God, we thank you that this was your plan. We thank you that you sent your son and that he accomplished this on our behalf. And we pray, Lord, now that your Holy Spirit would apply these truths to our hearts and to our minds, that we might live for you every day. We pray this in the precious name of Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen.